welcome to Success in Brief. I'm your host, Roseanne Filicello. In every episode, we spotlight successful women in the law. We discuss with them their journey to success. We talk about the difficulties and the trade-offs, along with the highlights and the benefits, and about what success means to each of them. We hope to inspire you with these stories on your own path to success. Hello, my name is Roseanne Filicello, and this is Success in Brief. I'm thrilled today to welcome Valerie Zolezi Windham to today's podcast. Um, I've known Valerie for over 20 years. We went to law school together at Boston University. And Valerie is the founder of Promoting Good LLC, an organization which partners with other organizations and leaders committed to learning and change. Uh, Valerie in the past has been an impactful social, social justice lawyer and activist. She now brings her creativity, joy, and excellence to her work promoting good. She is skillful at facilitation, coaching, and training at all levels of an organization and is an equity and leadership coach to C-suite and to rising leaders. Um, welcome, Valerie. Thank you. Today, Valerie is going to tell us more about her important work on equity and DEI, and as well as the Casita Cultura and about the Day of the Dead Festival, which I love the Day of the Dead. Um, so can't wait to learn more about that. Um, so let's jump right in. Uh, Valerie, what was your path to becoming an attorney? So I um, have always been interested in justice. And, you know, as a little girl, I'm growing up across Mexico in the United States. Um, I thought aloud about fairness, right? And what, um, you know, what, what allowed people to feel like they were uh, free, right, to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. And so I, I went to law school, not necessarily because I wanted to be a lawyer, um, but really because I wanted to understand the law, um, and sort of how the law relates to justice. Um, and thank you for having me, Roseanne. I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm so glad that we were able to reconnect after all these years. It's definitely one of the great advantages of social social media, yes. something that we, we don't always get to talk about, but it does have some advantages. <laughs> um, so that's fascinating. So you, when you went to law school, you weren't sure if you were going to practice. What did you think you might do with your law degree? So I... Well, I think when I went to law school, I didn't know if I would practice or not. I had been working in um, in management in the business sector, in part because I, my husband was in graduate school, and, and so I was the one working at the time. And I knew that I didn't love just working sort of in a corporate space. And so I thought exploring um, the law and seeing whether a legal practice is how I wanted to spend my career Um you know, that law school would sort of help me to understand that. Um, and it turns out, right, that um, that I love my clients and I worked as a legal aid attorney, so I did not work in corporate law. I'm um, in a big firm practice um, and I love my clients, but I found that the law was not necessarily the solution to the justice, to the injustices that my clients faced. And so at the end of the day, right, um, I moved out of law. Right, and we'll definitely uh, talk about that um, in a few minutes. I just wanted to focus a little bit on your beginning um, of your career because you did go to law school. And for how long did you work in, in legal aid? 
So I worked in Legal Aid for 15 years. So actually, not you know, not for a short amount of time. Um, I entered a legal aid program and I was a practicing attorney for about three years. I did a combination of public benefits law, employment work, and some immigration work. And because I had worked in sort of leadership in, in management positions before going to law school, um, I like within the first few years of practices started engaging in some management work within my legal aid program and shifted to that because of course, you know, lots of people go to law school because they want to practice, but they don't want to do the management of the practice. And so um, that's where my skills were more suited and, and where there was an immense need. And so even though I was with legal aid for 15 years, I really only practiced fully for the first three and then slowly, you know, reduced the caseload and started taking on more management functions. Yes, I find the management, it can be overwhelming how much management you need to do, especially as an organization grows. Right. right. So imagine an organization the side of legal aid required quite a bit of infrastructure. Yes. Um, how did you, um, so those management skills, did you, did you learn any of those in law school or were those all pre-law school and, and sort of after law school um, skills? No, they were all gained pre-law school. I think, I mean, law school gives you lots of preparation, but um, sort of administrative management is not, or leadership management isn't one of them. Um, but I, I had been in a management development program for college grads when I finished school. And that's really where I obtained skills, you know, learning how to supervise a team, learning how to uh, motivate a team, learning how to create and follow and help staff follow processes. Right. I mean, I, I think that would be a fabulous class that they offered it in law school, but they don't really give us any management skills. <laughs> right. No, I, I totally agree. I think um, I think those kinds of skills would be really helpful to attorneys, uh, you know, to be able to understand what kind of place they want to go practice law um, and also what to ask for as attorneys, right, who, who have needs so that they can be effective lawyers. Exactly. Yeah. And, and make them feel like they have the confidence not just to jump into the big law, you know, arena where everything else is sort of taken care of, of you for you and you just need to sit down and do your Westlaw research, you know, and write your briefs as a young associate versus actually managing a practice. Right, which I think can be really scary. And I, I I think a lot of people end up going the big law route because it's so scary to think about starting on your own when you're also just a new a new attorney, right? Yeah, yeah. I think in a lot of ways, law school scares you off of doing that. You know, between not giving you the management skills and professional responsibility classes, teaching you basically that you don't know anything. And when you come out of law school, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's scary to be like, oh, let me just go hang up a shingle now. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a disservice, I think, because we can't all be big firm attorneys, right? That's a right. very distinct part of the market. And nor do we all want to be big firm attorneys. Right. Well, <laughs> and I think and if you think about society, right, and what society needs, like everyone deserves an attorney, not just folks who can afford big law price yeah, tags. There's a huge need um, in that area of people that are above sort of legal aid, yeah. but have a matter that's not, you know, $20 million or more. Right. 
like there's a, which big law is not really going to look at you. So there's a there's a huge market that has a need that we're not really fulfilling. I feel like even now. So no, I think that's right. And really helping, you know, it's not just the management practices, but also thinking about, you know, the the finances. Um, you know, how do you how would how could you build a financial model that would allow you to serve a variety of clients with a with a variety of financial means, right? Um, but it's not intuitive. And if you're not good at numbers, it's really hard to figure out how to make that happen, even if you want to do it for fairness sakes, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really, I mean, I've been practicing as a solo or a small law firm attorney for quite a few years now, probably over about 11 years. And it's it's hard to figure out how to do that in today's market, you know, with the expenses that you do have. Um, you know, I, I do try to take on certain cases that are at a lower um, sort of perspective uh, payoff to me as a way of giving back and a way of doing, um, but it, it is hard to figure out the economics sometimes, I think. Yeah. Um, turning back to, 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 to you and your work, I, it's been, uh, really want to get into what you're doing at Promoting Good, um, but I did want to just touch on your background for another moment. Um, I know you were born in Mexico City, and you said earlier you've lived across the U.S. and in Mexico and in France. And so what led you to Massachusetts, where I think you've been for what, past 20 or so years now? Yeah, so I well, I went to college here in Massachusetts. I went to Boston College before BU Law. And, you know, and so I had immigrated from Mexico and, and going back as a working professional just wasn't an option. And we lived in California for five years in Southern California which was sort of lovely at the time, but we weren't near either of our families. And my husband's family is here in Massachusetts. And so when I was looking at law schools, um, it made sense to, to try to settle near somebody's family. Um, and we both you know, love New England and Massachusetts. And so that's how we ended up here. Yeah. I do miss Boston. I, I was back in September for um, the law firm, the, the reunion for, um, Boston University, and it's just great to be back to visit. It's such a great city, and it's really changed a lot, too, over the last 20 years. It has grown um, an, an immense amount, and even I'm a little bit west. Um, there's been a lot of growth, uh, both in both in Boston and in Worcester, where I've, where I've practiced. Um, so still beautiful, lots of change, and I was sorry to have missed it, um, but it looked like a great time. <laughs> So you mentioned earlier that you made the transition from um, working in legal aid to running your own organization. Uh, I think you've been doing that for now about what, five years or so? Yep, five years. And, and so tell us a little bit about that. How did you go about making that transition? What led you to, to make that big career shift? Sure. So, I mean, I think there were a few reasons why I left. I think, you know, the first, the first one is... Um, you know, I think one of the things that I discovered while I was still practicing is that the work environment, especially in the legal aid arena, although it's true in, in big law as well, is that the, you know, the staff, the, the attorneys are mostly white and at least in legal aid, right, most of our clients are not. Um, so most of our clients are of the global majority. And so there was this disconnect um, 
I also saw, right, even within legal aid, which had lots of women, that in leadership, a lot of the leadership was male. And I did, I did some work while I was there in my role as a managing attorney to diversify our staff and had some great success, you know, recruiting um, a more diverse attorney body, but also doing work to help all attorneys and paralegals, right, to build some practices so that regardless of your identity, right, you could better relate and, um, you know, have a better relationship with the clients who you were serving. And that's the work I really love doing out of all of the work I was doing. And so I started to consult, you know, people sort of learned that I knew how to do this. Um, and so I'd start to consult little by little on the side and, um, and I really enjoyed it. At the same time, you know, I was a managing attorney of the largest office in my program for five years and, you know, wasn't going to grow any further in the organization and, you know, uh, was no longer feeling like that was the place where I should be, where I was as supported as, as I wanted to be. And and so I was starting to think, think about, like, what is my next step? And, you know, I had been thinking about it for a, for a while. I mean, probably for two years. Like, what am I going to do? I think it's time to move on. And then I had um, one of these clients who I had consulted with offer or actually ask me if I could refer them to somebody who might do a little project for them. And I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> right. I, I could do that. Right? And I was like, yeah, I could do that. Um, and so I quit. <laughs> right. I mean, I gave great notice because I yeah. care about my organization and all those things um, and took some time to do some business planning. Um, but basically just left and started promoting good with this promise of one client. And I figured, right, I'm a lawyer. If it doesn't work, I'll just get a job. Right. Let's go back. Uh, but it worked. Um, we've grown exponentially over five years. So it started out with just me and now I have a team of five people who support the work. And so, you know, it was the right move to make. And I made that move, you know, a few years before sort of this social and racial justice reckoning that we are seeing play out right at a society level. And so when I first took the leap of faith, I think people thought there's no business model here. You're going to fail. Um, but in fact, we know that there is, there is an unending um, supply of organizations who are looking for help. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge market. We were just speaking a few minutes before we got on camera. And I mean, it, you see it every, every organization really needs this help because yeah. almost nobody knows what they're doing and knows how to do it correctly. And there's a need and, Yet there is a recognition that there is a need to do this work. Yeah. So that's uh, that's great. I'm so happy to hear that you're doing so well and that you you've grown and that there's other people out there who can provide these services. So you're, you know, you're you're growing your your organization. That's great. Um, you're in Massachusetts. Any talk of going to other states? So we work nationally, actually. Um, and in fact, my uh, so my team includes two other attorneys. Um, one of them is in D.C. and one of them is in New Jersey. And we have clients um, in California. We have clients in Texas. Um, definitely would love to do some work in New York because uh, my kid is in New York. I <laughs> uh, would love to spend some time there. Um, 
so no, we are we are certainly national and um, committed to quality and and to continued growth, but in a managed way. Um, and so we will continue to expand our train our team and have been doing some work to really improve our systems and our operations so that we can continue to scale while keeping, you know, the the quality and the consistency for the clients we have. You offer um, training to teach others how to do the work that you do or are not at that stage yet? So we do offer a, so one of the one of the services that we provide is training. And I, um, and I think we're going to talk about this in a little bit, um, but we don't do training alone. We do have a training of trainer model. And so for our clients who are looking to continue the training part of this work with their staff, we do, we can support uh, a team of people who we license to use our curriculum. And so, yes, I would say that, uh, you know, there is sort of supported that happens over a period of time so that we can feel confident that that work is going to be done in, in a careful way. Maybe you can talk a little bit overall sort of what services you do provide through Promoting Good and what the curriculum looks like and how you developed it. Sure. So we ha we ha our model is called Ignite, and it starts with an assessment. We want to understand where an organization is, right? And so, what is the readiness of the organization? What is um, where does leadership stand? Right? Are they committed to this work, or do they see it as sort of like this thing that other people have to do? Um, and what is the experience that uh, people who are not of the dominant group have in the organization? So we start with an assessment to understand where the organization is, and then we customize our um, our learning program so that it really is addressing the needs that are particular to our client. Because the issues present in different ways. You know, there might be some people who do really well, for example, in hiring. But they have, you know, but they lose people, um, and that's because it's not an inclusive environment, right? Um, some people aren't even able to hire, and we want to understand like what's happening, right? That doesn't allow that, that doesn't allow candidates to be seen, right, fairly for the skills that they have. Um, so we do that assessment. We then move on to that learning phase, and we in we we only take on clients where leadership is willing to do the work, and so our our learning program always starts with leadership, um, right? Because if, yeah. if leadership isn't on board, you know, you're not going to be successful as an organization. Um, and then we move to train uh, the whole organization, ideally. Um, after the learning program, we then move on to what we call our readiness phase. And that's where we take what, what we and what our learners learned um, about what their challenges are, right? Um, and so we help the organization set some goals and then to create a work plan that's going to allow them to sustainably address their specific challenges. Um, you know, learning is important and I, I don't ever want to be misunderstood that like there isn't a learning component to this work. There is, but really it's about practices, right? It's about changing behaviors and changing practices. And so how do you take what you learned in the learning program and make sure that you're implementing it so that as you move forward, right, you're continuing 
you're carrying on those commitments that you make in a learning program. Right. There's got to be changes at a structural level, probably, at the organization. Right. Um, and then we, and so we'll help, we'll help our clients um, create that plan of action. And then we can stay on to help them implement. You know, sometimes they really want to be supported as they implement um, to have some coaching that goes along the way. Um, we do design thinking workshops with our clients to help them address challenges that arise because some things may go really well and then other things may fall. And so we want to be available so that people don't give up, but actually keep, you know, remain accountable to the commitments they made, to their clients, to their staff. So that's the way that we approach the work. Um, and we work across sectors. So we have some clients in healthcare. We have, we have some law clients. We have some banking clients, a lot of arts and nonprofit clients. And, and so depending on the sector, right, can customize the experience so that it so that the learning and the action planning is really relevant to how the organization is structured and and you know the needs that they have based on the client communities that they serve is there a particular size of organization that you tend to work with or are you sort of across across sizes so we are across sizes um so our, our you know our largest client is a very large uh, medical, uh, like uh, university-based um, health system. And, you know, so for that client, we are, you know, we're in year three of the work. We started with the C-suite and we're now working with the, their entire HR system, you know, but they serve, they have 14,000 employees. And so the work takes time. Um, and then we have clients as small as 20 people. Um, and so we we scale the team based on the needs of the organization and learn things in each of the sizes, right? Like every organization has different needs and different challenges. Um, and so we think it's important not just to work in one space. That's interesting. I would imagine you have to get to a certain size for it to be maybe relevant or maybe not. I'm not sure. You tell me. Well, I think the our I would say that our very our smaller clients, the work is different, right? Um, it's a very different type of experience, and most of the time with those smaller organizations, we're helping them to create systems. and And if we think about it, right, ideally, that's what the large organizations would have done. Right. And so we're actually approaching the problem from two very different places with our very small clients. It's like, well, how do I create a hiring system as I grow that is right. inclusive? Um, and so we're able to be preventative with our larger clients. The work is really different. Right. They've had systems in place for a long time that worked for some, right, but that don't work for everyone. And so the work is really about getting people to accept that their systems have to change and then figuring out how you adjust course, you know, when the machine is really large and it's going to be a lot harder to, to move. Yeah, I can imagine there's more friction with the larger organizations. Yes. Yes, friction um, or resistance, as we call it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the resistance, uh, some of the resistance is 
a resistance to change. Mm-hmm. For others, you know, there 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 is a resistance to that these issues are real, right? Because they don't impact everybody, um, and so we do see those different kinds of resistance. Um, but I would say that a lot of those challenges we see across size and um, sort of area of scope. Um, so they're, the problems aren't necessarily worse in one place than in another. They're just different. <laughs> um, you mentioned um, that you don't do just one-off trainings. Um, and so um, I thought that that's very interesting. So you instead you develop these partnerships. So can you explain you know, sort of how you develop the partnerships and about how long each engagement lasts? You mentioned one year and year three. Is that a, do you expect to be sort of a constant with that organization or is it something that um, you know, comes to an end at some point? Sure. So I think I'll start by talking about why we don't do training alone. So training alone doesn't work, right? I mean, it like, it gives you that great feeling for like two weeks, right? And everyone's really encouraged and excited. Um, and so, and so I will say that it's important, but not enough. And so we really are looking to help people move to change and that change requires further action. And so that's why we say no to training alone. I think the other, and I, we will, we do make some exceptions. Um, you know, sometimes an organization maybe doesn't know that they're, they think they're further along than they are. And so sometimes going in and doing a training is how they learn, right. That they have more work to do. And so we will make some exceptions. Um, I think there are uh, there are also organizations who just want to check a box and they're looking for training alone. And we don't want to expend our resources um, in for those clients. Um, we also, you know, we are very careful about our reputation and being seen as, you know, a firm that is serious about this work. And so, um, you know, if we don't see that same intention in the potential client, then you know, we'll, we'll send them somewhere else where they are going to get what they're looking for, um, but it's not a match for us. Um, I think in terms of the relationships that we're looking to build, most of our clients stay with us for between six months to a year. Um, that's the amount of time it takes to do an assessment, to do a learning program, and then to, to do your strategic equity plan. Um, we have some clients who come back for more but usually it's additional work, right? Or in the case of a very large organization, right? It just takes longer to reach everyone who you want to reach. Um, but but we're not we aren't looking to become, you know, the diversity office of any one organization. Um, you know, the change really has to come from within at the end of the day. But with some really large clients, you know, the commitment just takes a little bit longer. And uh, do you offer sort of like refreshers or refresher training or refresher courses or yes so we have we will come back and do um follow-up work um we can for example you know do the the training program that we did for staff with new staff who come on after a year um and we do have you know some ways in which we continue to support our existing clients um and so we do offer some continued education um, you know, just to help refresh and to uh, remind folks, right, why these things are important to sustain. 
Sure. And new employees are coming in at right. times. So I'm sure sometimes there's a changeover as well. Right. Right. Or a specific issue maybe that arose. So sometimes, mm-hmm. right, like now you know that when something happens, that maybe there's something that has to be addressed. And so we can come in and do like a targeted precision intervention. Interesting. What, what always surprised me in, in the work that we do, we do some employment work um, occasionally on plaintiff side generally, but when you talk to HR individuals, it's interesting that sometimes people in HR don't apply the own like their own policies to themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, they've had an instance where someone was harassing them or something, and they they didn't file a report. They didn't like follow up like the actual policy of the HR department, <laughs> and you wonder what's going on there. But it's obviously that you know something might be written down in a book, but it doesn't make it part of the culture, right? right. Right. So getting it to be part of the culture is, must be challenging. Right. Well, and it's, it's about building a practice, right? Um, it's a lot of our clients have good policies on paper, but people don't understand them or, or they don't know what it means, right, in practice. Um, sometimes people don't know who to reach out to, right? Um, or they've heard, right, that those things haven't gone well in the past or nothing's come of them. And so they don't do anything. And, you know, that sends those things send signals, right, that this is not the kind of place that takes those things seriously. And so sometimes the work is at helping to shift that perception. Um, and, but that, you know, that's work that has to happen sort of across the organization. Um yeah, when you put it that way, it's easy to see how large the market is for this and the need for the yeah. services that you provide, really, because I think so many organizations are still in the mindset of, you know, having a policy, but maybe not having the actions behind that policy. Right. So it was a big decision when you decided to leave sort of practice of law. Did you consult anyone in particular? Did you look to others for advice or was it something that you were just your own counsel to? you know, in terms of coming to that decision that it was time to move on? Um, I No, I mean, I definitely have a tribe, <laughs> right, of, of people who care about me. And so I think some of the consultation was about, I had a lot of guilt about leaving, right? Like, you know, I had a good job. Um, I had a lot of responsibility. I had amazing people who worked for me. And so I had a lot of guilt about leaving them. And, and so I had to, I need, I needed some help, like dealing with that. I, I also think that, you know, I, my husband especially helped me to realize that like I was ready to go, right. That I was no longer as happy as I had once been. And, you know, sometimes I need somebody to tell you that. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I de- definitely consulted because I don't believe anyone should be their own lawyer, um, right? <laughs> Legal I counsel really actually really make it happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. You need to consult with others to uh, mm-hmm. to get the best advice. Yeah. But you know, it. I, I do think that there's a line, right? So sometimes, um, as attorneys and with the training that we have, sometimes we feel like we have the answers or we should be able to get to the answer without relying on someone else. So it's really, um, you know, sometimes you have to sort of push yourself to 
be the client, you know, right. in a way to to ask the questions, ask others for for advice. Yeah, well. no, I think I mean, I think it's critical and I I never practice. Um, I never take on any of my own issues. Um, and actually, I mean, you know, because I'm no longer practicing law, like I'm, you know, I am now inactive. And that also helps, right? Like if people ask me for advice or if I'm tempted to give myself advice, oh no, actually, really, I can't do that. Uh, um, so it might be a little bit easier for me than for others who are still practicing. Um, but I think it's, I think it's dangerous to give yourself that kind of counsel because in the, you know, in the same way that we have biases, right, against people who are different to us, um, I think we, we we can't be our own attorney because we're we're not seeing the issue as as clearly, right, or as transparently, or as fully as we think we are. Right. There's just a, there's a lot of emotion involved that you can't really account for. So right. That's fascinating. That um, it's it's good to be able to see the line. I feel like some people can't see the line and can't yeah. see where you should be on the line. So. <laughs> um, so you talked a little bit uh, about offline um, about Casita Cultural Latina. Can you tell us what that is and uh, and your involvement in it? Sure. So I'm sure I know, one of the reasons so. that <laughs> one of the reasons that I opened um, promoting good was well the main reason that I opened promoting good right was to help organizational workplaces to build environments of inclusion and of, of, of equity for a workforce and. Once I was doing that work, and in particular doing a lot of work within the art space, um, I discovered that in my own community of central Massachusetts, there, there really wasn't any place where Latino culture was being celebrated. And um, Worcester, the city that I'm closest to, is 25% Latino. And, and I just started to miss um, sort of access right to Latino culture and in part like we you know it was the pandemic and so I wasn't traveling back home to Mexico because I used to go you know twice a year and just saw a need to elevate Latino culture in my community and so we started by just holding a day of the dead festival so we've now held two and we the first one that we held you know was really at at the end of the lockdown, lockdown part of the pandemic. And we had lost so many Latino um, workers. Um, you know, deaths for that for Latinos were so high and our community was mourning. And there was all this attention that was being, I mean, rightfully and importantly placed on, you know, the murders of black people and the Asian violence. But many Latinos who I knew were just feeling like, were feeling alone and feeling invisible. And so we hosted a Dia de los Muertos festival to just like celebrate our culture. And, you know, and because I don't know how to do anything small, <laughs> right? I mean, we raised money to bring an amazing muralist, um, Victor Quiñones, Marca 27, to do a huge mural that sits at City Hall now. Oh, and it's amazing. Um, and so we held this amazing festival that was so well received that people were like, you have to do it again. And that wasn't originally our plan. Like, you know, we just thought we had to do something. Yeah. Um, and so we held a second uh, Day of the Dead Festival this past October. 
um, you know, and of course it was even bigger. We did talks about Latinidad and we had, you know, other artists create works of art. And so we now have a collection of work that needs a home. And so we have founded Casita Cultura Latina. There's a group of six of us. Um, we're all Latinos of different races and of different um, ages from different countries. Some of us like American born, some immigrants. Um, and um, and so we have founded a nonprofit and are looking to buy a building um, so that, well, and I should say I'm looking to buy a building for promoting good and for Casita um, so that we can showcase our collection and continue to build programming for the Latino community. So it's an extension of promoting good um, with a more focused um, audience. It sounds it sounds amazing. You've really created something just from from an idea, um, and to see to see it grow so fast must be really rewarding. It is really really rewarding, um, and like a different kind of challenge, right? And using a different part of my brain, and something that I'm doing with people in the community, right? Um, so it's a different kind of work, but still has required the legal mind, right? <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask you if you feel like you still use any of your legal training in the work that you're doing now, even though you're not practicing as an attorney, anything that you learned in law school or as an attorney. Yeah, I mean, I think what I would say is that I still use the thinking skills, right? Like the the analysis skills that I developed. I mean, I think if I think about what law school really did for us, right, like that's what it taught us to do. Um in a theoretical way, right? And so now I'm applying those same kinds of analytical skills to different kinds of problems. I think where where the work is slightly different relative to promoting good is that, you know, the law isn't just, right, necessarily. And sometimes the law um, doesn't address racism or, or other forms of oppression. And so, the work that I'm doing has to happen outside of the legal frameworks because you don't build culture through law, right? You build culture through what society needs. And right now those things are not aligned. Um, and so, so I still think like a lawyer, but I also have to remind myself, um, right, that the solutions don't only exist within the law um, and might sometimes have to make up for gaps that exist. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that, you know, the, sometimes the idea of law is blind, um, mm -hmm. really doesn't address the needs that law really should be fulfilling if you're trying to create a, a society that's doing good, right? And right. that is, so no, I, I appreciate all the work that you're doing and that sounds fantastic. I. Uh, Hope you keep me up to date. If you, when you do open the building, I'd love to see um, the murals. Oh, absolutely! I'll and I'll send you a picture so that you can see what it looks like. But yeah, we'd love to have you. I love the the, the Day of the Dead. Um, I have a good friend in Mexico who uh, she was an attorney at Patterson when I was there. She was a um, extern or fellow, but she went back to Mexico City. And she taught me about the Day of the Dead because I didn't know about it before. Before then, um, now it's part of a little bit of part of pop culture. I think Disney helps with Coco, and you yeah. know, people, our kids know what Day of the Dead is, and uh, which is great. I just think it's such a fabulous way of honoring those who have gone before in a way that other cultures don't 
really seems to do. American culture doesn't really do it that way. Um, and sort of having this ongoing relationship with those who have passed away versus forgetting about them. So, Right. And like having a, you know, I, one of the things that I love about Day of the Dead is that it's, you know, it, it allows you to recreate memories, right? Or to recreate moments that you might have shared with your loved ones, right? To think about something that they enjoy doing, right? Um, to find a new picture maybe of them, right? That reminds you of something different about them and to do it in a celebratory way, right? Because I think sometimes in in sort of the mainstream American culture, right? Like we don't, we aren't thinking about people we've lost in that way. Um, and so it can be really, really powerful. And you know, I think as a as a Mexican in the United States, hosting these events is also a way of changing the narrative, right? That is frequent about not just Mexicans but other Latin Americans, right? As um, you know, sort of a negative, right? When we have amazing culture, we have all of these ama amazing assets, um, a real beauty, and so. Um, you know, putting out into society some positive images, right, of the beauty that exists within Latino culture. And the, and the art that you mentioned, the murals, I mean, the, that tradition is wonderful. I mean, you know, so much beauty that maybe others aren't aware of. They haven't studied it or, or been in Mexico or been in a place where they had access and exposure to it. Right. You know, the more we can appreciate what we all bring to the table, the better our work will be, right? I think that that's absolutely right. So, what do you value most about the, you know, having gone to law school and having your law degree? So, I think I well, I think what I what today what I value the most is. Um, the ability to really be an analytical thinker and to just like have that way that I can approach the world. Um, but I also love that I can do anything I want with that degree. Right. I think for, I think a lot of people think that, you know, if you, if you go to law school and if you have a law degree, you have to practice law. And the way that I think we should frame the law degree or the law experience, right, is that you have some skills that you can apply to so many different kinds of places and that, you know, many organizations would benefit from sort of the, the thinking skill set, um, but applied in a different kind of way, right, than in the traditional, um, you know, sort of lawsuit um, or contract. <laughs> Right. It doesn't always have to be about conflict. Right. Right. And yeah. and that, like how wonderful it would be if it wasn't at all about conflict. Right. right. <laughs> I'm a litigator, so I know. <laughs> I don't know if I can wholeheartedly agree with you there, though. But I. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, and I think the other advantage is. That, you know, you do get some sense of respect and people take you seriously because you have a law degree that they might not have given you, um, you know, even though you're the same person, um, right. you know, it's it just, it's a, a way of sort of 
breaking down the, I guess, immediate objection people will have to, yeah. to something you have to say. So. No, I think that's right. I mean, in my, I, I can definitely say that um, both in my community, in terms of like social standing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that saying that you're a lawyer, right, um, is, is impactful. Um, I also think that it adds credibility to the work that Promoting Good does, right? To have uh, three of the staff members have that um, skill. We also have a mechanical engineer um, and we're all women, um, but, you know, but having those um, professional backgrounds does lend a credibility um, that's that's really important, especially given that we're, you know, our goal is to be impacting large employers, um, you know, people who have power within our client communities, because that, that it's in those places the change most needs to happen. Um, and so the, you know, the, the JD next to your name is, is helpful. I mean, of course, you have to be able to back that up, right, with the skills that you bring. Um, and, but especially, I think, as a woman, and especially when I was a younger woman, um, right, having that uh, was helpful. Not always, but <laughs> more helpful than if we hadn't had it, right? More helpful than not, generally. Yes. I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Valerie, you also have a life outside of work, I know. Uh, two children. You mentioned one that's in uh, New York already at university, which is amazing. Um, how, and you mentioned you go to Mexico twice a year other than during the pandemic. So how do you balance it all, running this great organization and maintaining your family, your sanity, um, <laughs> all of that? <laughs> well, I think what I'll say is that it is much easier now than it was when I was still working as a managing attorney of a firm. Um, you know, I, as the CEO of my company, I set my schedule, right? And so I now, w- I, li- I lift weights and I go to the gym three times a week. And most of the time, not always, occasionally my coach is like, you didn't make it, but I can right, set my schedule in a way that allows me the flexibility to travel, to go visit my children, um, you know, to spend time with my mom who now lives with us. And so I will say that being an entrepreneur and being self-employed has allowed me that flexibility that was much harder in a more traditional practice. Um, that was another one of the perks of leaving, right? Um, yeah. And so I think you have to learn to say no, and and I'm still working on it. But that's that's how you keep balance, right? Yeah. But the learning, the power of no, is really right. really key. Yeah. And, uh, and I think I'm, I'm sorry, you were saying something. No, no, go ahead. I think the only thing I'll add to that is that, you know, when I think about balance for myself, it doesn't mean that every week is balanced. Like, you know, the last two weeks, we've had some really intense work with clients. We also held our fifth anniversary celebration. And so there are there are weeks where where I am working nonstop. Um, And there are weeks where, you know, I'm working a little bit or not at all. And so I think Part of it is that we each should get to decide what balance looks like and without that being imposed on us, right? Um, like, what do you need to feel balanced right now? And how right. can you achieve that? And and to know that it might change over time. 
Yeah, and what you need to feel balanced when you have children that are you know, five and under versus right. in college or high school or you know different age groups. If, you know, you may spend more or less time right. in the house versus you know at work, and that's okay. And when you have autonomy uh, by running your own organization, you can do that versus if you have to show up for FaceTime for someone else, right? Right. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I do think, you know, my, my advice um, for young parents is to really think about, right? Like, what is it that I need right now? And so what would be the opportunity, the work opportunity for me right now that's going to work given my needs, right? Um, and I think I wasn't as good at doing that when I was a young parent. And it was really stressful. And so I think all of us should spend time thinking about that, right? Like this school year, what do I need to do? And what are the needs going to look like? And, you know, what kind of work can I do that's going to allow that? And and sometimes it does mean sort of leaving what you're doing and finding something else. And I really encourage people to do that because there are so many amazing ways that we can use our law degrees. Um, and so you just have to get over that leap of faith right? That you have to take. It is a leap of faith sometimes. And when I left big law, I had no clients. I didn't even have the one client. I had no clients. And so it's definitely a leap of faith. (laughs) (laughs) But look at you now, right? Yeah. 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 It's great. Uh, You know, you were talking about what young parents need and we have, um, you know, a a young associate now and hopefully we're growing and, and learning to set up a structure that works for them. It's also, you know, it's an important job that we have to take on as right. the, the leaders now. The structure we would have liked to have been in place, you know, when we started and, and a structure that makes sense um, to both get the work done, do good quality work, but also, um, you know, allow people to have, be able to balance it and have, pay, you know, have the time to focus on their children when they need to. And um, so it's a little bit easier now. Remote work has made it. Yeah. Think tremendously easier for them, but you know I'm constantly trying to think about that and how to um, manage. And I'm sure your, your organization does a lot of work in that as well. I'm sure. Yeah, no, we are. We have a lot of conversations about expectations, right? About the about the workplace from different generations, and I think you know we are seeing a lot of resistance in people in power, right, to change, even to continue remote work, right? And I think, you know, there, we do have to accept change because the, the young people who are coming into the workforce have different expectations. And, um, and, you know, I really believe that you need to, like, be clear about expectations and then be very flexible about the how. And, you know, if you want them to be successful, you have to adapt as the leader. And I think that can be really hard for folks who are like, wait a second, but now I'm in charge. Like, what do you mean I have to adapt? Um, and so it's a challenge, but I think um, younger people are requiring that of us. And so we're not, we're not going to be left with a choice if we want to work for us. No, and I mean, I think it's great in a lot of ways because you, as an employer, you want to be providing, you know, an an experience that will allow your employees to be successful and to feel fulfilled in what they're doing, I think. Um, And also, 
not have to feel like they're chained to their desk because that's not enjoyable for anyone either. Right. So, okay, I have last three. These are supposed to be my rapid fire questions. They don't always okay. turn out that way, but that's the idea. So I don't okay. want to take up too much more of your time. But I like to ask these questions because it's kind of fun to ask the same per same questions of different people and see how they they respond. So. Um, okay, if you didn't go to law school to be an attorney, what what career would you have chosen? Oh, I would have loved to be in the Foreign Service. Oh, very interesting. Um, in, in any particular area or just? Um... Uh, probably, I mean, probably in sort of the um, social service arena, right? Um, yeah, and I think that I, I would have had to do that for Mexico and that would have been really complicated. Um, and so it wasn't an option, but um, I would have loved to just travel and to experience um, different cultures and to help women and children all over the world. So you're, what you're doing now is not too far off. No, so, not too far off. <laughs> just without the travel internationally. <laughs> what is the one thing um, you know now that you wish you knew when you graduated law school? That that what job you have when you leave law school doesn't define you. That's great. Yeah, I agree. And the third one is, would you recommend a law career to a woman considering law school today? So I think it depends. I think you have to be realistic about um, the you have to be realistic about sort of the money that you will make, right? If you go to big law or not big law and the um, today in today's market, right? And the sacrifices that you're making one way or another. And, and so I think you have to, you have to be able to honestly assess what's going to work for you um, and whether you're going to be happy. And so it's not that I don't recommend it, but I think you really need to think about it. I mean, I think it's all gotten even more expensive. It was already very expensive when we went, and I think it's almost double now right. um, in 20 years. So, you know, the law, the law salaries are very high, but they haven't doubled. I don't know. Or, you know, it's just. <laughs> well, Valerie, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful um, to talk to you and reconnect and learn all about the good you're doing at promoting good. And uh, I hope we can continue the conversation. And I'd love to come to the next Day of the Dead Festival uh, if you're having one in 2023. Thank you so much. I really appreciate having you. And it's also been lovely uh, spending some time with you. It's been too long. You've been listening to Success in Brief with your host, Roseanne Felicello. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing the show with others. You can catch prior episodes at www.felicellolaw.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Twitter, and more.